0: All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the DealMaker show. So today we have a really incredible founder. We're going to be talking about building, scaling, you know, also the financing and the acquisition, because, I mean, one of his companies actually, it was reported that he got acquired for $1.7 billion. I mean, think about that. Really impressive. So, again, you know, we're going to be talking about how you know, they went about it, how they were able to have the company taking off, how even people were asking for autographs, the growth that they were experiencing even bigger and faster than you know, a company like Twitter. I mean, think about that. So again, without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Alf Hinch-Wang. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's uh, really a pleasure to be here. So originally born in Norway in a little town there. Give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? <laughs> yes, yeah, so I was born in a tiny place called Levanger in the, in Norway
1: with about 20,000 people living there. And I was kind of a normal boy, I guess, growing up. Uh, the only thing related to the whole the story we're talking about today is maybe I was really interested in computers and computer games. I think that was kind
0: of the strongest link to uh, what what is coming later. So how do you get into electronics and software and computers and how how did that happen? Yes, actually, it's a fun story. When I
1: I was at the store together with my cousin and he showed me a computer. I didn't have a computer at that that time. And he just showed me uh, how to program a computer and I was blown away. I can make this thing do whatever I like if I just learn programming. So that was, you know, I started programming when I was 13. So that was also like an inspiration. But then later on, I, I did a bachelor's degree in uh, in electronics. And later, I, I noticed that programming was closer to my heart. So I did a, a master's and a PhD on uh, programming or software engineering.
0: So in your case, gaming, how the love for gaming develops? Yes. So I was born per kind of perfect
1: age or I'm perfect age for gaming. So I was born in 1970. So that's when gaming started. So I, you know, I grew up with arcade games and after, you know, when I was growing up, I was playing games with friends on Commodore 64. If you're old, you know what that kind of computer is. And uh, all these kind of old game consoles and stuff. And I've been, uh, Really passionate about gaming my whole life. And of course, I also made games, really crappy games, but still uh, together with friends, tried to make the games we were dreaming of. So yeah, my whole life I've been involved in gaming.
0: Now, one of the things that uh, you've definitely been involved your whole life is academia. Yes. You know, you've been a professor and doing research. And so being involved with academia for so long too, I mean, what? What, what got you hooked into the academia world?
1: So I think uh, for me, it's, uh, you know, this passion to learn more and to figure out things. And one great thing about at least uh, the type of, you know, being a professor in um, computer science or software engineering is that also you can come up with ideas. And you can, together with, for instance, master students, you can develop this idea, make prototypes, and you can test them. So it's a great uh, environment for testing new ideas and exploring and see, you know, maybe you can invent or make something that has never been seen before. So that's, for me, that's really important, a passion to try to figure out and come up with new stuff.
0: One of the things that happened there is that while you were now involved in university as a professor, you started to really develop ideas and projects. And and obviously, many of those, you know, would end up becoming companies uh, very successfully. Uh, so, uh, but how do you go from doing research and being in a university and coming up, let's say, with the idea of Kahoot to all of a sudden Kahoot, you know, being brought to life? How, da- how does that work? <laughs> yes. Yeah, so
1: for me, it was, you know, I had... Um... In 2006, I had a lot, bunch of ideas. So I, I uh, proposed these ideas as master projects. So I had master students that, you know, got involved. They developed prototypes, and we tested these in the classroom. And when, and for instance, Kahoot at that time it was called called Lecture Quiz was one of these ideas, and we tested Lecture Quiz in the classroom. And I noticed there's some energy here, there's something happening. So. I didn't know at that time that kind of the potential, but I knew something was there. It changed kind of the atmosphere of the classroom. So uh, then uh, for four years, we developed new prototypes. We improved um, kind of the prototypes and did more testing. Uh, and we also started to look at how we can commercialize um, this uh, this prototype. Actually, at the same time, <laughs> uh, I also have to include another project that we worked along with the, the lecture quiz, also have a system called Mooses, which was multiplayer on one screen entertainment system. And this was basically in a movie theater, you can play arcade games. So if you have a lot of people in movie theater, they can use their mobile phones. And that was before smartphones. And they could play like a multiplayer uh, game with a lot of different things on the large screen together in the same room. So that was at the same time we had students working with that. And these two projects merge into Kahoot later on in 2012, when we start to work on the commercial prototype or the commercial product, actually. Uh, going from prototypes to commercial product is very different. You know, Prototypes, they can have a lot of bugs, and be unstable. But when you develop... Also for us, I think we focus a lot of technology, but not so much on making it easy to use. And for teachers, the prototypes are pretty hard to, to use. But when we started as a company, developing the product then usability and make it easy to use, and the user experience was super important, as well as um, making it uh, you know, accessible.
0: So what ended up being the business model of Kahoot? How were you guys making money there for the people that are listening to get it? <laughs>
1: yes. <laughs> so in the beginning, that was interesting, uh, by the way, because in the beginning, um, we just started making a prototype and we got some users and we have different advisors. And one of the, uh, our advisors said, uh, "Don't think so much about earning money now. Just try to get as many users as possible, and then we can tap into making money." So that was actually the advice we got in two thousand and twelve. Uh, so the first couple of years, of course, we needed ex- investors. Um, but he said basically, if you have an amazing user growth, we it's easy to kind of uh, find ways of earning money. So we were thinking in the beginning to have like a uh like a quiz store where you could buy content. That was basically what we wanted to do in the beginning, or have like a subscription for the tool. But I think if I think back, if you have started that way, we wouldn't have made it because to get like um incredible user growth is more important, I think, in the beginning. And then if you had get investors on board, uh, it would it's possible or then it's there are a lot of opportunities to actually earn money. So in the beginning, we didn't focus so much on earning money as getting a lot of users. And it's kind of similar to what Facebook a lot of other companies has been doing, or at least in the beginning, before they start to earn a lot of money.
0: So what was the tipping point of Kahoot? At what point do you guys realize, wow, this thing is taking off? Yes, so
1: uh, uh, one um, on our team, uh, his name is Osman, uh, who's also working for Kahoot today. He said, I think it was uh, in 2013, early. He said, like, next year we have 1 million users. And we kind of laughed. Oh, no, that's what we were thinking. This is a tool maybe for Scandinavia or a couple of com- companies or countries. But then the year after, we had actually 1 million users. Um, and it was growing fast, almost as fast as it was po- hard to uh, have the uh, stable technology. So it I think, uh, looking back, it was good that we didn't have. A, uh, like a uh, higher user growth, because then I think we might have more difficult technically so but we have a a very steady and um a user growth that was quite uh, impressive, and I think in terms of context in Norway, I don't think any companies have had kind of similar user growth
0: and i mean it was pretty amazing because even you guys were visiting schools and being asked for autographs i mean that's uh, insane <laughs> yes yeah, so uh,
1: at that time also i lived in california for a year and i i was visiting a lot of schools uh, talking to like um school uh, teachers about you know, how to use Kahoot, and and i was i wanted to see how it was used in action and when the teacher told um The teacher told the kids, you know, uh, this is uh, one of the guys that came up with Kahoot uh, and also making music. They were kind of went crazy and we had to sign autographs. And yeah, it was strange. We didn't expect that. Almost like rock stars. And
0: and even like people using it in North Korea. How is that?
1: (laughs) Yes. Uh, Because, um, yeah, you have these um, uh, monitoring sites where you can see, you know, per usage of your tool if you have like a web based tool. And in the beginning, you could see, you know, uh, maybe UK, USA, and you have a couple of countries in Europe. And then we started to spread out. And then, and then it was kind of every day we looked if there were any white spots where uh, people have not played Coyotes. And in the beginning, we had maybe a couple of spots in Africa, maybe a couple of spots in Asia, on, including North North Korea. But after a while, all the uh, you know countries in the world were covered, so that was quite amazing. We didn't know exactly you know who in North Korea was playing kahoot, but at least there were some
0: doing that. And, and what did the activation of Fortune 500 companies look like? Because I mean, that was probably surprising to you guys.
1: Yes. Um, so uh, for us, when we were starting starting kahoot, the main focus was, or we thought that this was a higher ed uh, education tool. So we were targeting higher education. But in the early beginning, we also wanted to explore ways of earning money. So, actually, one of the first companies we targeted was IKEA, and they had a problem because IKEA they have a large turnover. Usually, they have like young, maybe students working in the stores, so they need to go through training. Their training is kind of boring, and they don't don't need to know ex kind of approximately how much employees know before they. Can start to work in the stores. So I presented uh, Kahoot. You know, this is what Kahoot does. And that was a perfect match for their corporate training. It made it more exciting. They knew how, how much the employees, uh, you know, we could, they could test the knowledge skills after the training. Uh, so that was the first company a customer for us. And now it's amazing because it's, you know, like 97% of Fortune 500 companies use Kahoot for training, for events and stuff. That was something we didn't expect. But of course, it's very nice because that also means it's a, a way of having a nice income for the company.
0: Now, now obviously, you know, for you guys, incredible income for the company, incredible growth. Uh, but one thing, you know, like uh, led to the next and the company ends up being acquired for $1.7 I mean, that is absolutely remarkable to be able to create that amount of value. And then also for the first company that you did, you know, to be able to achieve that level of outcome, uh, did you ever envision, you know, like the company getting to that level when you, you know, were doing the research in in school? (laughs) No, no way. Uh, So it was more like,
1: actually, my initial idea was maybe this is a tool that I can use maybe, you know, some colleagues at my university and some other schools, but I didn't dream it was possible to you know, this kind of size is a global company we can access it anywhere. And uh, and it was very strange to see that this was actually possible. At one stage, actually, the code has been um, more valuable than uh, the acquisition right now. Um, uh, but I think we, we are really pre- uh, pleased about, you know, the acquisition anyways. Uh, and there's... there's um, also, the company is, has about 500 employees or more than 500, which is also, I know this is a small company in other countries, but at least in uh, in Norway, it's uh, it's a fairly big company and starting from well, scratch. So,
0: yeah. 500 employees, I mean, it's uh, definitely a big company, eh? but definitely in Norway is like an absolute uh, incredible, you know, big time company. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at Alejandro at PanteraAdvisors.com, and we would love to take a look at helping you out. The next company that you did was PlayPulse, and uh, obviously, you know, you can't win, win them all, right? Uh, in PlayPulse, you know, obviously, the, the outcome was a little bit different. What happened with PlayPulse? What were you guys doing there, and what happened with PlayPulse?
1: Yes, yeah, so PlayPulse was actually an idea of a master student of mine. Uh, he came up with the idea, and I ju- and I was his supervisor and joined the startup team. So the idea here was to transform like exercise bikes into arcade games to do proper exercise. So we wanted to have um, focus on gaming, um, like real gaming, and but playing it on an exercise bike, um, and we tried different uh, business models Uh, so beginning we focused on like um, uh, gyms uh, to sell this as a equipment you can have in gyms but the thing is i think this market is hard because they have not the margins are quite limited so to sell in something extra it's a bit hard uh, to get you know um, enough fun or income from that source also a lot of People when they go to the gym, they are interested in getting maximum exercise, not to have fun. So I think our product was better fit for home if you just want to you want to exercise, but still you think it's kind of boring uh, so we transitions transitions more to kind of the home market and then Covid <laughs> hit uh which made we actually forced to transition to the home market. And then I think uh, if we had been faster with the product already, I think we would have been able to succeed. But we were kind of at the end of COVID, we didn't still didn't have a product. I think that was one of the crucial parts. And one lesson learned from me at least is that hardware is difficult. You know, software it's scalable, you don't have to have a lot of like installments, it's easy to maintain and fix stuff. But hardware is Expensive to develop, design, and produce. Especially exercise bikes, also quite heavy, and there's so many things that can go wrong. So a lesson learned for me is at least think about twice before getting into hardware <laughs> company or yeah technology. It's it's much wow. more difficult, and it also it depends a lot of money to invest to get the products ready. That's also I think.
0: Now now obviously, you know, you you, you keep pumping, you know, ideas and, and, yeah. and projects like like there's no like there's no tomorrow. I mean it's amazing. <laughs> uh now the next one is BitPit. So how did BitPit come to life? Yes, yeah, so actually I'm I'm still working as a professor at the
1: university and I did a large um study on the um the research on Pokemon Go. So what were the kind of research effects, like health effects from playing Pokemon Go? And I discovered that, you know, it's it had it has a really strong impact on emotional, uh, or both physical and emotional and social health, um, positive. Uh, but it was kind of limited in terms of if you didn't play it for a long time, you lost all the health effects. So I wanted to do something similar, but with a stronger bond to the game so it could last longer and so to boost both social and um, physical uh, effect so basic uh, concept is that you have a virtual pet uh, or multiple virtual pets and you actually have to exercise these pets to uh, so you have to walk uh, with your phone to get food and stuff uh, resources it's also photo competitions included or involved so you can take photos of your pets and it's a social you can meet other friends uh, so and also it's augmented reality um, so a lot of stuff going on and I think uh, it looks promising the, um, the concept and also the way the feedback we get from the users now so our plan is to launch probably um, next summer uh, and this uh, the plan is to have like um, a game service that's can live for a long time where you can um, uh, play with your friends that involves uh,
0: yeah, both physical and social exercise but having fun all the way.
1: That's kind of the main
0: focus here. Now, imagine in a world you know where, let's say, you go to sleep and you wake up in that future world where the vision of Big Pet is fully realized. What would yeah. that world look like? So for me,
1: that would be that you could have We have some uh, augmented reality glasses now, but imagine if you have like perfect augmented reality glasses, just like sunglasses, that's a battery that can last for a long time. And you can just, uh, you can just experience this virtual uh, world around you augmented in reality. And, and you can experience all this magical happening uh, around you in this game, that that would kind of be the perfect way of playing this game. So that, It's kind of the optimal um, way of doing this. I think maybe we'll get there because the technology is, you know, there's a lot of um, technology or big companies investing into this uh, mixed reality or augmented reality uh, technology. It's still
0: a bit early, but I think we'll get there and then we'll be ready for the world. So in your case, I mean, a lot of ideas, A lot of uh, thinking through whether or not they make sense, you know, and if they have legs or not to be able to go into a product and then commercialization. Uh, Now, in that regard, how do you know and how how do you distinguish when an idea has legs versus an idea that doesn't have legs?
1: Yes, Uh, and that's... I'm quite fortunate since I'm still working as a professor at the university. I can do experiments, which a lot of kind of uh, startups can't do. Uh, so I can do experiments with students, uh, develop prototypes, and then we do experiments with real users to see if there's a potential. And for me, since I work with game technology, if I see there is like um, this engagement uh, um, towards you know the, the product or the game, I can say, okay, this is something that actually will work. And I look, for engagement towards the game, but also your social engagement. If this is something happening between those using the product, that's kind of how I determine if if I should go further on this product. But note, I think throughout my work at the university, I probably developed sixty or seventy prototypes. So most of them are scrapped. There's maybe I can write a research paper but there's no companies based on those products so i've failed most of the time these projects or these ideas are actually not good enough so there are some that have a potential but most of them actually don't so and that's something that's great with my my position when i work at the university
0: because i've i can afford to fail a lot of times but usually that's not the case and how do you come up with ideas you know what's the uh perhaps <laughs> What's the process? What's the source of inspiration? Where do you look for them? How 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 does how do they come to you?
1: Yes, yeah, so uh, I think for me, first of all, um, you have to, you know, if, if for instance, if I'm also a musician, so if you want to create new mu- music, I think to listen to a lot of different music helps. And the same with you know, with game technology, I'm always interested in new type of games and especially things that are maybe a bit. Uh, different from anything else so inspiration is important but also i think for just coming up with ideas actually it doesn't help to sit by your desk and to. oh now i have to get an idea for me usually I, I take walks or do something else uh and then the ideas more come to me but i'm i think i'm quite, i'm a quite creative person so for me it's more natural to think about crazy stuff uh i guess but uh, it depends. Yeah. But I, I think, you know, inspiration, uh, um, in the domain you want to explore, but also, um, try to maybe look at things from different angles. Uh, that could help. At least that's, that's been important for me and maybe merge different things, not think about one specific, maybe merge different ideas.
0: That's also, it was a, actually a result of merging at least two, uh, two ideas and once you have already the idea the prototype what would you say is the toughest part of uh, bringing something to market for
1: us it's always surviving the you know it's it's a race uh for having enough funding to develop like a product uh, that is stable that's always hard uh, there's soft funding of course but also you have to look for investors and i think the main problem is st- when you're between kind of product that shows potential and an early prototype and you need some time to develop like a prototype that is solid enough to investors to see the potential, but it's hard to get funding to get there. It depends how advanced, uh, you kind know, of the te- technology is, but I think that's the major difficulty to get to something that will, um, investors will see, okay, this is something I really want to invest money so that in-between state is really hard uh, to survive, I think.
0: Now, imagine if I was to put you into a time machine yeah. and I bring you back in time. Yeah. Let's say I was able to bring you back, you know, for example, to 2012, when you were now, you know, coming up with the idea of Kahoot. And let's say you were able to have a sit down next to that younger self. Yeah, And you were able to give that younger self one piece of advice before launching a business yeah. what would that be and why, given what you know now
1: i I think uh uh I would have given the advice that actually it is possible to think big at that time. I think we were kind of didn't think it was possible to pull you know off uh, uh, you know big ideas and make something global, so I think that would be one of the major motivations and the reason also I have started other you know startups and companies afterwards is that i i know now i know it's possible uh so even though and it's not like a, it's also not a horrible thing if you fail so i th- think a lot of people may get scared you know oh we can fail yeah sure but that's not the end of the world uh but so just be bold and um if you believe in the idea, just just uh,
0: really uh, pay, you know, go all in. I think that would be my main advice. I love it. So, Al, for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so?
1: LinkedIn is fine. Yeah. LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn. That's uh, for sure maybe the easiest way. So, LinkedIn, if you just search my name on LinkedIn, I will get in touch. I think that's the easiest way.
0: Yeah, Amazing. Well, easy enough. Well, hey, well, Hal, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thank you so much for inviting me. This has been a joy for me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help,